Today is the 30th of August, 2014, and this is episode 140. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, the twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Chris DeRose. He recently was in Argentina, and actually this is going to be a bit of a special episode. So, Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. You contacted me about halfway through your trip to Argentina, and you were down there for Bitcoin Magazine writing some articles, yeah? That's correct. How did you find yourself in that role? Can you tell us a little bit about your background? I've been into Bitcoin for many years, and uh, as of late, in the last year or two, I've been very active in the South Florida Bitcoin community. I'm an organizer for the South Florida Meetup Group, or the largest meetup group in the area. We have a chapter in Miami and a chapter in West Palm Beach. And uh, as I've been more involved in the community here, Latin America has been more and more appealing to me in terms of my outreach. So. I decided to go down to Argentina to do some reporting there on the new Bitcoin embassy that was opening up, and I was doing that with Bitcoin Magazine. And as I started to talk to people, I realized how big this thing really was, and I reached out to you because I felt like I had some content that maybe your listeners would appreciate. And that's how I ended up here. We appreciate that very much. I don't generally get down to Argentina too often. Where were you during your trip? How long were you there? So I was there for a little bit over a week, and I was right there in Buenos Aires, and, and most of that trip was spent exploring the area around the Bitcoin Embassy, the people of the Bitcoin Embassy, going to the Bitcoin meetups there. Uh, everyone's been been very welcoming down there, and for anybody listening to this show, I would highly encourage you to stop by and, and check out a meetup. They're very well organized. Bitcoin there is, is a little different than it is in the States. For us in the States, a lot of the focus is on the payment mechanism features in Bitcoin, certainly in regards to the startups that are that are active. Over there in Buenos Aires, due to the inflation problems uh, and the lack of faith in their currency, Bitcoin is a little bit more pronounced in its store value functions. So that's really neat to see. And I think it's important for people to start recognizing that there's a cultural difference right now between the two continents. On a recent episode, we had an interview with Richard Bose, who had gone to Kenya and a few parts of Africa with this sort of Bitcoin evangelism, you know, let's change the world, save the world bug. And he came back actually kind of depressed, I, I would say. It was not a, a pleasant experience for him. He actually came back pretty disillusioned with the potential for Bitcoin to help in general because they had such problems there that any sort of long-term solution was not something that was going to work for this. You know, they, there were difficulties with technology and there were just, there were a lot of hurdles that he ran into in Africa that he was not expecting to run into. And I, I'm, so I'm curious, it sounds like it's, it's actually going better in Argentina. Well, I certainly haven't been to Kenya, uh, though it is on my list, but things are definitely going much better than, than what you've described in uh, Buenos Aires and, and presumably the rest of Argentina. They're definitely a bit behind in the public perception, I would say, for the average person in what is Bitcoin and what does it do as it relates to the United States. But the people that are into it there are, I think, a little bit more organized. I think that the people who see what it is take the value a little bit more personally and a little bit more meaningfully even than we do. Certainly not you and I or the people your podcast, but like the average person on the street. I think that, that there are a little bit more higher stakes games going on there in Argentina for, for the people that are involved. Penetration is pretty high. Um, I think that they have the highest number of local Bitcoins exchangers. Uh, I can certainly say that based on what I saw, the exchangers there were very sophisticated. And then the Bitcoin accepting merchants are also very high on a per capita basis. They're moving ahead. I think that they may very well be the epicenter of uh, Bitcoin at the rate they're going in terms of a... Uh, 
on the streets sort of per capita usage. Are all of the usages basically person to person? Oh, you were talking about merchants there too, but are there companies like BitPay that are there enabling the sort of thing that BitPay does here or is it just not even a concern there? BitPay is there and BitPay has a slightly different proposition there than they do in the States. Here in the States, I think they like to focus more on the the low overhead for their transaction fees. Over there in Buenos Aires, the payment terms are what they advertise. This was eye-opening for me as an American, but you have a whole lot of problems when your currency is inflating at rates of 10% per month. And one of them is with traditional credit card contracts for which you're paid typically in a net 30 term. When the inflation goes as high as 10% in 30 days, a lot of your profit margin has been eroded now just by getting paid from your credit card vendor. So for BitPay over there, uh, one of their bigger selling points is that they have a net one payment term. You'll get your fiat in the next day. In doing so, that helps a lot of vendors stave uh, the effects of inflation or certainly the store value functions there as well. So for the volatility that we may have with Bitcoin, it pales in comparison to the, the fiat inflation in a lot of these circumstances. That's the BitPay model there, but but there are other companies. Uh, BitPagos has a a pretty unique model that you don't see in the States. BitPagos seems to be gaining a lot of traction as well. They're dealing with a lot of smaller companies, typically hotels, but tourist-oriented businesses. And what they do is process fiat, typically American dollar fiat, in the United States, and then compensate the hotels or the merchants in Buenos Aires in Bitcoin. And in doing so, they are able to displace a lot of the tax overhead from those transactions, which itself is a whole conversation, but th- there's a lot of them. So people, it sounds like, are using Bitcoin in Argentina because it's useful, <laughs> because it's useful uh, as money in their particular circumstance. Right. You know, at our meetings here, there's still a predominantly enthusiast turnout, and, and that's wonderful. But the fundamentals aren't as solid here, perhaps, as they are in Argentina. And, and not that they're not solid here. Uh, they have a crisis going on there in Argentina for which these are real solutions. And I see that in the streets visiting there. Speaking of the streets, you were telling me before the start of this interview about the street hawkers and about you know the calling out that was going on. And in the past, played audio from Satoshi Square and from some of the originating events for that. And so in the background here, we're, you know, we're playing this, this street noise. What are we listening to? So Buenos Aires is an unusual place for many reasons, and there's a lot of contradictions in the way that they run their policies. What you're listening to is the sophistication of the black market currency exchangers, who quite literally hang out in the tourist zones and yell out cambio, which means change. They're looking for people who need change. These street dealers will offer a much better rate uh, to the tune of 50% greater than the official rate. It's an odd system to watch because it's clearly very illegal, but amidst these people, there are street patrol cops who just walk by and they don't seem to do anything. And it seems to be a, a tacit sort of acknowledgement of, of the absurdity of the system that either they can't do something or perhaps these street dealers are doing favor for the cops as well. I'm not sure which scenario that is, but there's a lot of these contradictions in the Argentinian culture, especially as it concerns money, uh, which bodes well for Bitcoin, I think. Did you see anybody using official rates? I mean, is that just like something where official rates are literally only used at official places? A lot of people use official rates. It's weird to watch because you're effectively trapped into these these official rates and, and everybody knows it. 
I spoke to an architect while I was there, and he runs a professional consulting company, which does business primarily in the United States. And he was complaining to me about how the taxes are levied against his work. He gets paid by American companies by credit card. They go through the central banking system. They use the unofficial rate of eight pesos. And that's much lower, of, right, than uh, the standard rate? recording. Correct. The free market rate is 12 pesos. That spread, by the way, is a tax that goes to the government coffers. It's added to their foreign exchange reserves for which they, they're needing to pay their debts in U.S. dollars. So he receives money from the United States at this reduced rate. And then he has to turn around and pay vendors back in the United States and again at this reduced rate. So he gets hit up on both sides of the taxes. And that's fairly typical for many people there. This happens at the borders. This happens when dealing with official channels. But on the streets, it's very different. If you're a tourist that goes to a restaurant to buy a hamburger, they'll list the price and they'll typically use the free market rates if you're paying in cash. But as soon as you get out your credit card and it goes through the banking system, now you're back to this government tax rate of, of eight pesos. It's a little bizarre and it's a little much to take in at first and everybody's very okay with it. Or maybe they're not okay with it, but they're very used to it. It doesn't seem absurd to them. But there's a major cultural relationship that Argentinians have with money that seems very unique to me as an American. And even as a world traveler, there, there's sort of this hypocrisy between the official line and uh, the free market economy. And this spreads out into a couple other areas as well. The printed fiat currency itself is a little strange. The highest denomination that they offer is roughly $8 US. It's 100 pesos. And you can kind of imagine that if we had to get by mostly on cash and our, our highest bill being an $8 bill, we'd be walking around with large wads of money. And, and what else starts to happen, you'll see, is that the quality of the print is inferior to our currency by a lot. So you'll, you'll get a 100 peso bill and it'll be faded and the hologram may be faded and people use it because it goes through the economy a lot more due to it being an all cash economy, but also due to the low denomination. The two peso bills are just abysmal in quality. They are taped up and they're ripped. And the reason that's kind of important is because a lot of counterfeit currency ends up making its way through the market. And it's hard to tell the difference between the real currency and the counterfeit currency. And you will get counterfeit currency straight from the bank, even. It's it's A, that good, and the fiat currency is, is B, that bad. And there's so much of it, it sounds like, too. I mean, it seems like it's a lot easier to slip in, you know, 20% fakes when you're dealing with tens of thousands of notes. That's a very good point. I, I witnessed a couple of exchangers while I was there that were... I mean, they were, they were substantial amount of money, certainly by Argentinian standards, but not necessarily by ours, a $1,000 transaction, say. And it's a whole process. You have to sit there with wads of money within rubber bands, and everybody checks every single bill. The exchangers are, are phenomenally good at it. I learned a few tips for handling money from them, but the average person can't count it quite as fast, so the whole transaction takes a while. And there's a lot of trust involved, which is strange because we don't have that in the States, and you don't realize what trust Bitcoin brings until you start to see all of the absurdities that happen when the currency system starts to break down. The rate of inflation in Argentina has been quite high for a long time. Is this just government inefficiency or is there anything else? There's so much faith involved in currency. Coming back from there, and, and we all know this as, as Bitcoiners, but bills are so sort of specious in value. It's just paper with ink. If I took a $100 bill and I put it on my copy machine and I gave it to you and it came off my copy machine, you wouldn't accept it. And I would ask you, why wouldn't you accept it? And you would say, well, it's it's on the wrong paper. It doesn't have a hologram. But, but those are sort of trivial distinctions. They're really not standing for anything greater in the scheme of things. They're just IOUs of a sort from a central agency. Now, we all have a lot of faith in the US government. And I'm not going to come on here and say that the dollar is bad. It, it's not. It's the most successful currency we've ever had, I think. But you start to see in these countries with the failed economies that once that faith starts to break down, you turn into this game of hot potato with your currency where nobody wants to hold on to it any longer than they have to. 
in the case of Argentina, they're, they're effectively forced to hold on to it for any amount of time. It starts, I think, with mismanaged policy at the macro scale. It starts, in Argentina's case, with missed loans that they could not pay for, causing interest rates that are higher, reducing the amount of capital flowing through the country in various ways. And then what starts to happen is, is people don't want to hold this money in their savings accounts. So that money ends up flooding on the streets. And this is sort of a perpetual cycle that starts to build from there where it is hot potato time and people don't trust the money and they want it out faster than they even want it in. And, and that sort of perpetuates that cycle. The person who loses the most is the one that's holding the most of the currency when like a devaluation event takes place or something. Correct. And on payday, people line up at the ATM machines and they withdraw their money to buy as much as they can because they know that their money, by the time they get paid uh, again, is going to be worth less. So they, they try to buy more things. They try to hold more assets when they can. But uh, it's, it's a really tough place, I think, especially for young people for all these reasons. It's, it's worth watching. If you're a Bitcoin enthusiast, you'll learn a lot about your own economy watching another economy break down. We all live on this very tenuous line, I think, and we don't realize that sometimes where, where public faith is really all that there is propping up a, a large system. Tell it like it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not actually one of these guys that thinks to dog on the dollar. I, I have a lot of faith in the dollar. I don't think Bitcoin's going to displace anytime soon, but that a lot of these cur currencies are just terrible. And it will certainly replace some of these others. The element of competition, and that's the thing that really seems like it's happening in Argentina, is that now there's a competitive currency that's not the dollar. There was always the dollar there, but it has all the same problems, you know, not all the same problems, it has slightly different problems, but it's just different when you have a token that doesn't have that central banking system that it has to go through. And that's what I think makes it so interesting right now. That's not the narrative that you'll hear over there. Certainly it's the narrative you'll hear going through the Bitcoin embassy and, and talking to the people in those circles. But if you read the newspapers, and, and I don't speak the language, but from what I could tell, people seem to think that this is just a repeat uh, of the last financial crisis they had in 2002. But I suspect it's very different. Chris, speaking of the embassy, uh, one of the interviews that you did while you were there, you did a number of interviews, but uh, this is the one that you told me jumped out at you in particular as the thing that we should really highlight. And can you tell us a little bit about this? I think the probably the most prominent character there in Buenos Aires is, is Diego. He is very active in, in all things Bitcoin. He's probably the main orchestrator of the Bitcoin Center, aka the Bitcoin Embassy. And he is constantly jumping from meetup group to investor meeting to really just even emptying out the trash at the embassy. Bitcoin is his life. He's a very nice guy. He's one of the nicest people I've met in my entire life. And certainly there in, in Buenos Aires, he made me feel very much at home. He's very passionate about Bitcoin. He's very smart and he's very proficient as an English speaker as well. So for all those reasons, I think that he's probably the, the best person to go to to get an idea of what's going on down there, where they're going, and where Bitcoin fits in. So hopefully this interview provides some benefit to your audience in all those ways. Chris, this has been really interesting. Thank you very much for taking over this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. If people are interested you know, in, in getting involved with your projects or want to get in contact with you, what are the ways to do that? Well, I highly encourage anybody in the South Florida area who's listening to this to come out to a meeting. We meet every single week, sometimes in Fort Lauderdale, sometimes in Miami, sometimes in West Palm. But certainly there's a meetup that's going to be coming up soon for you. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to tell you about our plans for South Florida. And anybody who wants to write to me, they can email me at chris at chrisderose.com. And look out for me. I try to contribute as much information and content as I can to uh, the Bitcoin audience. There's a lot that I've received from the community, and it's, it's time that I start giving back. So hopefully I succeed. This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com and listeners like yourself. 
I've unplugged from the net through the end of August, and while sponsors have been great, it didn't happen for this trip. So if you enjoyed this episode, check out the show notes or head over to letstalkbitcoin.com to send us a tip in either Bitcoin or LTB coin. Today's magic word is travel. That's T-R-A-V-E-L, travel. You've got until the 2nd of September to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and enter the magic word for your share of the listener rewards. And now, back to the show. is Chris DeRose here at the Bitcoin Embassy, and today I have Diego Gutierrez Zaldivar. He is an uh, active member of the community here in Buenos Aires. Well, he has too many interests to list all at once, so let's just get started. Diego, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, Chris. Why don't you give a brief overview of how you got started with Bitcoin? In 2011, a friend of mine who is a hacker took my attention into it and showed me what was being done around the world. It was like very basic, Bitcoin was under a dollar. So mostly people in the South Asia area was using it to overcome restrictions from governments that were not very open. But then for me, it was more of a game than anything else as many disruptive technologies, I didn't catch it right on. Almost a year after, uh, Wences Casares brought my attention back to it. We did exchange of Bitcoins among us and we play around with it. And after that, everything fell into place in my head. So for two weeks, nonstop, almost non-sleeping, uh, studying Bitcoin from all its aspects, so all its perspectives. So that's the real point where I, I say I realized the potential of it, maybe early 2012, uh, late 2010. And how did you get started with the community locally from there? Did you start running meetups? Did you attend meetups? As soon as I realized the potential of Bitcoin, I decided I needed to get my hands dirty on it. So I started doing anything there was to be done in Bitcoin. I opened an account in local Bitcoins. I started to uh, buy Bitcoins, sell Bitcoins. Uh, so my first approach to the community was sitting on cafes with people and, and was very enrichment, uh, enriching to, to see the, the variety of people that was involved. In Bitcoin, although most of them were techies and some financial guys, but there were also people that didn't belong to any of those groups, so it was very interesting. I also bought a mining machine. I, I like I started to do anything. I started a project to help restaurants and cafe accept Bitcoin, and finally uh, we started with the meetup as a way to to have a place where people could discuss about Bitcoin and share their, their doubts and interests. You guys started with the meetup group day one then? Yeah, I, the first meetup was made by Wences Casares. I took over after him. I mean, he passed by Buenos Aires, he's not living here, so he made one meetup and then he passed the, the meetup to me and, and then I took over on, on the third meetup. We met with Rodolfo and Franco and since then we have been building the community together and, and many others have joined us. As well, and and so let me understand what you're you're working on now. I, I see you involved in so many things. Yeah, you want to give the audience an overview of, of some of the more important things you're doing right now. The community has taken uh, by by itself, so there are much more members working actively on the community. So maybe the meetups are being run by other people, although I participate because I enjoy them a lot. 
I, I also give chats about particular issues or, or subjects, but all in all, certain aspects of the community are being driven by other people. But mostly in these days, the Bitcoin space, the Bitcoin center we have here in Buenos Aires is, has been for the last two or three months my main objective. And I would say the other big aspect I'm, I'm working on is building a Latin American network of Bitcoin communities. We have already 10 countries that join that community. And I try to travel to Uruguay and Chile and if I have the opportunity to other countries in Latin America to, to strengthen that community. And finally, uh, although Rodolfo is, is the leader on that project, we are also hosting the second Latin American Bitcoin conference in Rio. So I would say those plus uh, the interaction with the local authorities, our FinCEN that is called WIFT, and uh, the central bank and all the local authorities, all that together is my main occupations aside my business. How did the Bitcoin Center come to be? Whose idea was that and how did that progress and over how much time? I had this idea uh, some, some years ago about creating a multicultural, not multicultural, but a multi-company environment where different types of companies, maybe artistic companies, tech companies, could live together and share their, their different perspectives and business and, and create a center. And of course, that idea, as I got more involved into the Bitcoin uh, development in the region, that idea turned to be a Bitcoin center uh, that would host both companies and the community in, under a single roof, not as a concentrator, but as a center where new projects and ideas could start and then open into the world. So that's what we have here. And we also host people that pass by Buenos Aires and like you, <laughs> and wants to know more about what's going on in the Bitcoin community here. Yeah, I've been very uh, happy about the generosity you guys have provided. It's been wonderful. And is it a nonprofit organization then, or is this a commercial venture, the Bitcoin Center? I, I want it to be a sustainable entity, but not it's, it's not a for-profit. We are not doing this uh, as a business by itself, and all the, the funds we gather from the activities made on the center, go back to the center so we can improve it. Our idea is to really have a, a beacon to the society. We are in the financial downtown, so we want to expose to the world what Bitcoin is, what is happening here. So we want the center, the Bitcoin center, to be really impressive to anybody that arrives. So any any money made on the center will go back to, to make the center better, to make it sustainable, to have some funds to to overcome any, any problem we have. So I attended one of the meetups uh, this week, and I was very impressed with the diversity of the crowd. But not knowing the language is a little hard for me to get the inside story with some of these people. What do you see as a common mindset for the attendees at the meetings these days? Are they enthusiasts? Are they people who are trying to protect their financial interests? Uh, you want to expound on that a bit? Yes. The, the interesting thing is our community, it's uh, not single-minded. It's like totally eclectic. So you have all the, the types of guys and girls that you mentioned. You have people who come because they are idealists. You have businessmen. You have also people that is intrigued by the, the technology and the potential. You have libertarians, anarchists. That's a nice thing. We, we have people from 
many different strokes share the same room and also share ideas. Sometimes they don't agree on their basic points of view, but everything is done with a lot of respect and, and understanding. So for me, it's beautiful to see how the meetups evolve over time. Is that a standard format for you, the presentation format with a couple of orators and then dinner and drinks? Are, are there other formats that you employ? We have basically two formats. One is well, the meetups that have, always have uh, presentations on different topics, legal aspects of Bitcoin Argentina, uh, the um, taxation point of view of Bitcoin or anything trading, anything that is connected to Bitcoin and, and local aspects, we give uh, presentations on that subjects and after people drink and, and eat and chat freely. But then we do every other week, we do also drink apps that is more relaxed uh, meetings where people just really interact and discuss ideas and have no particular format. It's just a place to, to meet and, and exchange ideas. Are you going to migrate those meetups to the the Bitcoin Center in the future, or are you going to keep it at that same location with that sort of uh, bohemian feel to it? Uh, What's your intent there? No, we, we want to keep it nomadic. The idea is to, as well as we do with the Latin American conference, that we are rotating it among countries in Latin America to support, and we will donate part of the funds to the local communities where we do those uh, conference. The same thing happens with the meetups. Meetups are a way also to support the bars and restaurants that offer their space so we can hold them and then most of them end up accepting bitcoin and, and building also the merchant and so we want to keep although we will host meetups in the in the bitcoin center of course we want to keep that idea of uh, having uh, meetups that will be held in different places all the time. so let's switch it up a little bit and let's talk about the economics here in argentina uh, clearly, you guys are at the forefront of a lot of uh, Bitcoin advancements because currency has had so many problems over the years. And, and I've learned a lot about the different business models, and some of them are very smart. But I, I have a couple questions about why things are the way they are. So let's start with, why does the government have an official rate that is not the same as the market rate for pesos? Can you explain that to our audience? There are many different point of view, <laughs> points of view on that. But in, I would say, in my perspective, there's uh, two sides to that. One is that the government uses the exchange rate to keep, they, are, they have been changing external debt into internal debt. Basically, they were changing dollar, US dollars debt into pesos debt. So keeping the rate low between pesos and USDs uh, help them make that conversion more profitable for them, liquidates, uh, liquidifies the, the debt. That's one side of it. And then they profit a lot from the exports. Also having a lower exchange rate, they, they can profit from the exports taxation in a more profitable way. So I don't think on the lower scale, I mean, on the day to day and how the citizenship uses U.S. dollars or buys exporting currencies, what the government does doesn't make any impact. And, and that's the reason why the government allows the, these casas de cambios and parallel markets to exist. And they don't really fight the existence of this uh, blue market as we call it, this black market for foreign exchange. So 
So if I understand then, you would suggest that the difference perhaps between the market rate and the official rate, which currently is roughly four pesos, I believe, which is, yes. what is that, almost, uh, I have calculated, almost 50% more. Yes. Right. So the government is then taking that as a form of taxation and adding it to its foreign currency reserves? Yeah, that would be a way to put it. Okay. Do you think the average citizen sees it in those terms, or do you think that they don't develop that thought? No. People maybe stops at the idea of being control and that's it. They don't see further, but there's clearly an agenda why do that. Because for the government, releasing the U.S. dollar currency exchange would be easier in terms of not having another political front fight with the media and the policy. And the position. But there's clearly an, an agenda. And the government recently loosened the exchange a little, and I think they will do that in steps over time. They will gradually make both the official and the blue dollar price come together. Do you know how they calculate the blue dollar rate exactly? Do you know what that process is about? I don't know the specifics. I, I think it has to do with the flow of, of money between the, you know, Sebastián Serrano has a better idea of that, but it's, there, there is something related to the flow of money between the inflow and the outflow. Okay, just for the audience, the blue rate is the exchange uh, set by essentially the market, it would seem, and it is calculated every day and it's yes. published in the local papers. It's a bit of a black box, though, I think, as to exactly how they get that number. Yeah, I, I can I can give you more information on that. There is a calculation on how they do it, and then you have what it's called contado con liqui, that is basically in selling actions on the exchange in the US and, and the price of the contado con liqui it's a sanctioned way of getting dollars almost at the blue rate. There is also one way of assessing price. And how is the official rate calculated? Is that a black box at the Treasury? Yes. When, when was the last time they adjusted that, do you know? Well, that was early this year. That's why we have like a peak inflation rate basically because they, they make like a steep adjustment to the to the official book. I see. So they, that was a big yeah. increase. Yes. What is the society, what is the word like on the street? Do you see more people at your meetings when that when that rate changes? Do people care that much? Is it a major problem? Of course. Of course, at the beginning, they, that creates a lot of uncertainty because they don't know if that will create a run or if things will stabilize. So people in the first one, two, maybe three weeks, it's expecting where, I mean, they are looking for where the things are going. After that, everything goes down. That's uh, something that I explain a lot to people from the outside because they say how you can live with 30% inflation every year. And in Argentina, as long as it's 30% every year and it's, you know how much inflation you will have, you accommodate your businesses and everything to that. Like you say, okay, uh, your customers live in the same situation, so you tell them every four months we will adjust 10%. And everybody's okay with that because they do the same thing. Uh, people adapt to it. Do you see that the dollar is typically the anchor by which the rates are measured? Or is the euro typically cited down here? What, what do you see in that respect? Argentinians have used the dollar to protect their wealth for many, many years. Now. Their mindset, all things are measured in dollars mostly. That's something the government has tried to change, uh, pushing, for example, the valuation of the properties, uh, the real estate properties into pesos instead of US dollars because until recently, all the properties were measured in US dollars. So they are trying to overcome that cultural way of thinking in things in terms of dollars. 
but people still use dollar to protect their, their wealth. Is it easier, do you think, for the average citizen to buy Bitcoin or to buy dollars, given that they have pesos? For sure, it's easier to buy dollars because all the processes to buy dollars are in place and are known to everybody, from the businessman to the regular guy, regular Joe. So clearly, if people want to jump over the the blockade, the government creates some currency exchanges, uses dollars. Although Bitcoin is an option, but I don't think the reason people go to Bitcoin is because they are trying to overcome the government restrictions. As I like to say, if people choose Bitcoin, they do it over dollar, not over peso. They think Bitcoin is more worthy than dollars. And that requires a deeper understanding of what you're doing. That's interesting. It makes perfect sense. The impression that I had, though, is that if a, if a citizen wanted to buy dollars, they, they're typically unable to do so from the bank. And they, they, I would suppose, have to go to the Cambio uh, or the, the Cuevos even. Did I pronounce that right? Cuevos? Cuevos. Cuevos. It's like a Right. Okay. Yeah, it's like a cave because it's dark. But Bitcoin is a property of sort. So I thought that maybe they could buy Bitcoin directly from their bank account in the way that they would do like a, an ACH payment in the States or something. Is that true? Is that not true? There's no regulation on, on Bitcoin and governments here tend to, to act will without proper logic behavior. So that stops people from doing that because they don't know if a Bitcoin transaction gets registered in the banking system, how it will be treated and everything that's changing. Our FinCEN called UIF recently gave their position on Bitcoin, which is a very good first step. But so far people was doing mostly the Bitcoin buying and selling hand-in-hand in, in a cafe or a bar because they didn't know, you know, if they registered a Bitcoin transaction, how that would work. That's why we don't have exchanges because the rules are not clear enough to have a proper exchange that you can link to your bank account. I thought that's what Coinbase was going to do. Is that, is that true uh, for the future then? Yes, we have five to six exchanges under development. All of them have hit a wall when they went to the banks and tried to open bank account, telling the truth that they were going to be a bit. And you have the other side of the coin is that banks have to pay the central bank and, and they are solidary with their customers if they do something that the central bank considers illegal. So banks are not willing to take the risk to open an account for a Bitcoin exchange at this point because they don't know what the risk is. That's what is stopping mainly the, the exchange development here. But there are many projects that are willing to do so and that they want to do it following the rules and doing everything properly. So let's talk a little bit about the exchanges that exist for dollar, because it's this strange uh, system here that, where you can go into the tourist districts and it seems like the tourists are uh, used to get dollars into the economy. These people are pretty open about buying them from the tourists must be illegal, but at the same time, I see I see policemen walking by the exchangers without much care. Is it a system by which the tourists feed into that economy and then that economy turns around and gives savings to Argentinians? Is that roughly what's going on there? Well, as I said, the government doesn't pursue you know, the, the fulfillment of the law or the enforcement of the law strictly as they should. They allow that exchange on personal level on not on the institutional level, but yes, on the on the people level, they, they allow people to go there and, and tourists to sell their dollars and get pesos and the other way around to Argentina to get dollars and, and, and pay with pesos. So there is a, this informal network that is working and has been working for many years now. It's, it's not something recent. 
and it's in the open. So if the government would really like to shut it down, they could say, not that the network is so difficult to detect or to close down. They don't do it because, as I said, their objectives with these uh, currency exchange controls doesn't relate directly to what the regular Joe is doing, relate more to a macroeconomic level of how they want control the flow and outflow of dollar. Is it a fair assessment to suggest in Bitcoin terms that the peso is failing as a store of value, but it's succeeding as a payment mechanism? Well, yes, I, I agree with that. Peso as a store of value has no value. I, I give the example, some, some people buy cars in installments because the installments are interest-free. So at the end, buying the car ends up being an investment. Even we know buying a car is not an investment, but it ends up being an investment if you compare that to keeping the peso. So it's better to pay installments for a car, then get the car and sell it at the future price than, than saving the peso. And people here is doing all those sorts of things all the time. They are looking for different ways to protect their wealth, even from uh, an outsider perspective. It seems like a lot of the businesses that are very successful here off the bat, BitPagos perhaps and BitPay, their market niche is to protect the store of value and facilitate the mechanism through pesos on at least one end of the transaction. Is that fairly consistent? Yes. Uh, one thing is that the currency exchange controls brought some very bad situations for the tourist industry because, for example, if you want to make a reservation in a hotel, you have no means of payment that was valid from abroad. So you can reserve the, the hotel room beforehand. So they cut the inflow of money from the outside for very simple things like reserving a hotel room. And big powers and, and the systems use Bitcoin instead brought a solution because a hotel could receive uh, the reservation in bitcoins, hold the reservation until the customer arrives, and then decide if the customer wants bitcoin back and pay dollars or or they will change the, the bitcoins into dollars and finish the transaction that way. They really are solving a, a problem for, a, for the industry. So I, I agree with you. People see it as a way to protect their wealth and also or to treasure it and also to solve merchant problems. For a tourist who comes to Buenos Aires and has Bitcoin and needs some local fiat, what would you recommend that they do? Well, I'm a little bit biased. I would say Bitcoin is a great way to travel. Maybe if you go to the countryside, not every city or town will have Bitcoin exchangers. But if you want to come to Buenos Aires, that's an excellent way to travel. If you go to Chile or Santiago, the same thing happens. If you go to the main cities in Latin America, you will always find somebody willing to buy your Bitcoins. You will know nice people. Also, it's interesting point of view that will be willing to exchange their point of view on local society and so on. So it's a, it's a plus. It's not only a way of bringing your money but also to know how the culture works and get an insight. Right, so would you recommend local Bitcoins then for, for such a tourist to find an exchanger in advance? Are there better ways for the for the tourist to come in exchange? Well, in, in Argentina, we have uh, our own local Bitcoins, called Conecta Bitcoins. And in Chile, you have Yakui. So there are options in Latin America different, but local Bitcoins would be the first step. And these rates are based primarily off of blue dollar rate, essentially? Yes. That's, that's the other important thing. Tourists were being paid the official rate for the dollars. So they end up paying, as you say, maybe 
in the past and everything because they, they had a bad exchange. With Bitcoin, you will get the blue rate and, and usually we use it here as a reference exchange. Um, in Argentina, I created mercado-bitcoin.com.ar for that purpose. So you can go there and see right on the spot what's the price of a Bitcoin peso. Are there plans that you know of to open up BTMs for tourists uh, in any way, even if it's at the official rates or anything like that? Is that being worked on? There is one BTM, one ATM, Bitcoin ATM here, and there's one in progress in Montevideo. So I think we soon will will see more of those uh, nice machines spreading around America. There's one in Rio as well. Slowly but steady, they are appearing. Uh, and another thing that is kind of unusual to me as a tourist is that the largest denomination bill that you have is underneath 10 US dollars. And yeah. so I, I walk around with a very large stack of paper. <laughs> yes. It feels nice to be uh, some kind of wealthy maybe in those terms, but why why don't they print larger bills? Why is it such a small denomination? That's, that's a big problem because uh, it, it's getting more difficult to carry all that dash as they have bills. They recall the Germans after the war, they, they needed like a little cart to to buy bread. <laughs> I think we are approaching that that situation. I think creating bigger bills would mean to accept inflation. That's mostly the reason why they are not creating uh, bigger bills. They are st- stacking with the one hand pesos. Uh, also with the bills, uh, I've noticed that the, the condition of the paper is not that good. <laughs> Certainly in the case of the two peso, but even in the the uh, hundred pesos, it's kind of a little a little ratty. And I, I've seen counterfeits from day one. Do you think the treasury is, is having a problem recirculating money, perhaps, and that's why, or why is that? That's one of the problems, and we have a big corruption case lately because the in charge of printing the pesos made a very low quality print of the latest bills. It's not even that the paper is bad, but you see printing flaws. So you see numbers that are run on the side uh, and different mistakes. So even the, the, the legal ones are difficult to tell from the fake ones. That's a big problem. So yes, that's mostly due to incompetence. That to me, anyway, paper money looks like toy money. Every day. I couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right. History will look back at this fiat currency with a uh, sort of cheeky fondness. Uh, Absolutely. Another odd component to the economy that I put into is is that there's a high fee for electronics. And I think it's an import tariff must be uh, exercised. Is it exclusively on electronics or is it all imports? There's this approach from the government that they want to foster local industry. And then the way they do protect the local industry or they help the local industry grow is by creating high tax import uh, on the imports, high tax on the imports. That's clearly a very bad way to do it because what happens is we are not going to create max in Argentina anytime soon. So what happens is that electronics and especially computers or tablets are being very difficult to access for young kids or people who doesn't have a good income. So at the end, from my perspective in the electronic field, they are doing is making the digital divide even worse. So very bad approach. Does that make it hard, do you think, to to run a startup that's such a technology-oriented company here? you think that really hurts you guys? Well, it it makes it much more expensive in terms of the relative income power of, of the entrepreneur. Because uh, in the US, a guy that works at the McDonald's uh, can easily afford having a notebook. And here, a guy that maybe is finishing 
the university is not in a position where he can buy or for uh, office space, etc. And that would extend to cell phones as well, I would suggest. Yes. Is that what you've seen too, that perhaps the cell phone adoption is a bit older than the technology maybe in the States or lower, or do you think that's an exception? There's an exception there because there's a, something like a trendy factor to the, to the cell phone adoption. So people, even if it's very hard, they, 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 they get in depth <laughs> to have a, a good or the latest phone. So in things that are within the range of what people can spend with their basic salary, they don't care if they get in debt. They do it anyway, but but I, I think the adoption would be much higher if they were more accessible. Okay, well, that's encouraging. I, I see a lot of credit card logos in the Windows shops more than even I would see in the states. But then when I go into the store, they don't necessarily take credit cards. What do you what do you think is going on with that? Is it is it they have a higher rate to pay for international customers? Yeah, credit cards here function terribly. They charge maybe six percent per transaction. And they pay the merchants sometimes months later. So for a merchant with a 2% per month inflation, uh, not having, and that needs the, the money flow to keep going, not having their cash right, right away, it's really a problem. So some, some merchants, you will see that even they have stickers on the screens. At certain points, they have another or saying, we don't accept credit cards. People, depending on their situation with their cash flow, they will decide not to accept credit cards because they are inefficient and they are expensive. And I see that as a big opportunity in the region because other countries share the same problems to help merchants. So do you think that the bad experience that they've had with existing payment systems makes them pessimistic about Bitcoin? Or do you think it's the opposite, that they understand this is very different? The, the main problem with Bitcoin is understanding it. They don't see it in the same light as it yeah, but it takes some time for them to get accustomed to it and be comfortable. And sometimes the, the mobile networks are very bad here. So that goes uh, against a good user experience. So those things are maybe the lack of a good mobile network and the internet is not being used yet as uh, for merchants. But as long as those things get solved, I think Bitcoin will become very, very strong. I've had positive experiences with the internet on uh, my roaming plan as well as in cafes thus far, at least in Buenos Aires. Is that, do you think about the standard that I would see throughout South America? Do you think you're exceptional or do you think you're underdeveloped? I think Buenos Aires is kind of a little bit above the, the line uh, with respect. As I said, I traveled to Chile and for me to get a roaming, good roaming, wireless connection is difficult. Uh, at least I, I went to Montevideo recently, the same thing happened. And, and for me, so, Weird because I think how a society can thrive these days, connection, what internet connection is like something that should be everywhere because it makes the business reality. Bitcoin supports bonds through NFC now. Mm -hmm. So I think that if the internet connection is available at the point of sales terminal, that it wouldn't necessarily matter if the is roaming yes. if the interfaces were developed. Do you know anybody who's trying to do that solution here? I just saw the mobile wallets, but I didn't see anybody. I think one of the projects is already trying to work with it. There's nothing working. And that kind of relates to another thing that I've noticed is that the point of sale terminals here are often computers. Yes. They're not like they are in the States where they're embedded systems. Often even a Windows machine running an application with a mouse and a keyboard. Do you know, is there one provider of these systems or there are hundreds of these no it's like merchants provide get get their system by themselves maybe they have the, their friendly tech guy they use for their home computer and that same guy is the one that installs the computer in the merchant uh, point of sale so there's no 
there's no standardized embed system for merchants here. If you go to the shopping malls, maybe you will see more robust solutions. But in regular cafes and restaurants, it's do you think they do that because uh, it helps them stay off the grid a little bit more and process their cash with more privacy? Or do you think it's more of a technological convenience? Yes, mo- most of the merchants are not maybe technology proficient. So they just uh, bring to their businesses what they know. Some of them are using tablets as well. So that's kind of uneven. It's not that you see a single solution. Like anybody uses what they have in hand. Going forward, what, what do you think the, the economic segment is going, is going to adopt Bitcoin first here? Is it going to be the tourist industries? And is it going to reflect the Cambio type stuff? Or do you think you'll see it more for resident to resident transactions? I think in Latin America in general, there's a huge opportunity for remittances. When people think about remittances, they think in international remittances. I mean, uh, first world countries sending money to Latin America. But it, it's a huge flow of remittances inside Latin America. So you have uh, a lot of people working in Argentina sending money to Paraguay or Bolivia. A lot of people in Chile sending money to Peru and Bolivia. So I think the remittances business will be one where Bitcoin can thrive. The other one, as I said, is as a payment method. Uh, payment methods in Latin America are either monopolies like in Chile or are very bad like in, in Argentina. So that's another way, a place where Bitcoin will disrupt the industry. And as you say, the tourist industry is clearly a third place where, where Bitcoin will thrive in the short term. And you travel a lot. I know I mentioned the first time in the States. How do you think South America compares with the United States in terms of uh, adoption and cultural acceptance? The States is, is well more advanced in terms of technology, also because technology is more accessible. Uh, having a high-speed link of 90 megs per second in the States with fiber optics in the house is not a problem. Here it's something you don't even think about. Maybe 10, 30 megs is is the top you will get for a business, and common people won't, won't get something like that, same metric link. So I think the States is very advanced in, in that sense, but in Latin America, population is very aware of what macroeconomics do in their lives, because uh, governments are tweaking and changing the, the game all the time. Uh, so in that sense, I think Latin America has uh, you know, uh, some advantage to what the U.S. has in terms of cultural understanding of how macroeconomics impact their life, lives and, and how Bitcoin offers a solution to that manipulation. I think we'll see. We'll see what happens. I think in the States, business will, Bitcoin business will thrive and, and grow faster than in Latin America. And in Latin America, we might see grassroots movements, you know, starting and, and thriving faster. It's a very fair analogy. I think the grassroots movement is perhaps even more sophisticated here, but the corporate culture exactly. is a little bit more sophisticated in the States. That's my perspective. You were here in Argentina during the 90s when you had the original dot-com booms in the United States. Yeah. What was the progression here relative to the United States? Were you in a position to measure those two? and Were they neck and neck, or was it delayed here? I think we were almost neck and neck. I started out, I was part of the the web revolution back in the 90s and and you know I, I was starting the first websites for the main newspaper here called Clarín uh, in 1995 and Wire 
has its website in 1984. So it's like everybody was, well, Tim Meyers was, uh, Tim Burton, sorry, Tim Burton Lee was uh, started with HTML in 1982. So everything was right there. But again, Argentina was an exception, it was not the rule in Latin. Argentina, in that sense, always pushed technology adoption. And, and you can see that in that most of the big uh, Latin American web companies like Mercado Libre, that eBay owns part of it, or Boomerang, or you know, different different types of uh, web companies, uh, started in And then they grow and, and expand into the whole region. But, but most of the more significant companies in Latin America are starting at Despegar, tourist area, that are example. Uh, so I, I don't think Argentina is behind. As we discussed earlier, um, access to technology is, is much harder. Uh, so we are kind of the underdog in that sense. But the, the human potential is there. So what do you think is holding back the average uh, citizen right now from being more involved in the economy? Do you think it's just a public perception that means marketing? Do you think it's uh, government support? What What do you think would help the most right now? Uh, I think, in my perspective, government support would be very important. Also, to streamline the bureaucracy. Uh, setting up a company in Argentina takes three months at least. Setting up the company plus the bank account and everything. Everything is so cumbersome and alien to, to a guy that is maybe a first-time startup. Entrepreneur, uh, a young guy, 20, 20 some years, that never had a relationship with the bank or with the state. So everything is so difficult for, for entrepreneurs that I think streamlining that process alone would make a huge change in society. Do you think the media support is positive currently or skeptical? What kind of news articles are you typically seeing? Media is. It's very chaotic. It's, it doesn't have a clear focus. It's like they go from gossip to football to political agendas. Uh, that's a problem. I think that, you know, we don't have like a long-term plan uh, as a nation, like saying, okay, where we want to be in 20 years and let's all put our energy to get into that place. That lack of a clear vision and mission for the country, that doesn't help. I don't know if it goes against it, but it really doesn't help. So if you were to ask, say, 10 random people on the street, their citizens, what they think of Bitcoin, what percentage would say, what are you talking about? What percentage would say, no way? And what percentage would say, that's pretty cool? <laughs> well, in Argentina, we have tides or waves of exposure uh, of Bitcoin in the media. When the big media companies like news, main newspapers or some TV channels or the radios put their attention on Bitcoin. It's, it's incredible how, how pervasive is the notion of Bitcoin in everybody. But then if you have three or four months where nobody talk about Bitcoin, people kind of forget. So some of them, if you ask them, maybe out of 10, I would say one or two would tell right away, say, okay, Bitcoin is, oh yes, the currency or something they pick up. Uh, and then from the remaining eight, if you dig bigger and throw them a little bone on where to pick up Bitcoin, uh, they will find it in the back of their heads. If you say Bitcoin the currency or Bitcoin the payment, the electronic payment system, they say, oh, yes, 
the system that people use to send money abroad. Or, so basically, the notion of Bitcoin is widespread, but it's not in the daily agenda. So, so it depends on how the media was interacting with Bitcoin lately, uh, the awareness. Well, that's encouraging. In my short time here, I've seen a number of tourists that have come basically to see what you're doing here. Uh, do you appreciate these people coming internationally? And do you have any advice to somebody who's coming to do that, just listening to this interview? Of course, we embrace that. And, and that was one of the main goals of creating Coin Center slash Embassy Space, <laughs> uh, was exactly that, to give a home to the Bitcoin community or, or the Bitcoin enthusiasts in the world, in Latin America, and to give them a place where they can meet local community, local entrepreneurs, and create bonds that are fruitful for everybody. That, in a way, is what happened in the last Latin American conference we did. A lot of bonds were created between entrepreneurs of different places of Latin America, and then we wanted to replicate that on a daily basis. Uh, so, yes, yeah, I would say, come on, <laughs> you're welcome, and, and you'll have a fun time for sure. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. Is there anything you wanted to promote for the show? Is there anything that you'd like to announce? Um, no, as I said, the conference at the end of the year would be a great place to, to meet the Latin American communities and, and entrepreneurs. So anybody interested in seeing how Bitcoin goes in Latin America, that's the place to go. It will be the first week of December, Rio de Janeiro. And of course, you can come here if you want to contact any Latin American entrepreneurs or communities, uh, I'm more than open to share all I know about it. And Thank you so much for your time, Diego. It was a wonderful interview, and I really appreciate all the hospitality. This is Chris DeRose with Let's Talk Bitcoin, signing out. So this concludes the first episode that we've ever really done that's been a correspondent episode. And I just want to take this opportunity to say that if you are going to be traveling someplace that is interesting and you want to capture some content for us and potentially do a contributor episode, feel free to email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com because I really I enjoyed this, Chris. Thank you very much. This was a this was a really fun thing. Thank you, Adam. It was fun for me too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Krista Rose, Diego Gutierrez, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Denise Levine and Adam B. Levine. Music was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. The LTB platform is now open source under the name of Tokenly. A link to the forum thread introducing it is in the show notes, and if you'd like to contribute to our PHP-based platform, you can now earn 10,000 LTBC for every commit that's accepted into the main branch. Thanks for listening.